This is Politics, where we bring the scripture to life and leadership today. Welcome to our second week in our journey through Exodus. As we read through this study together, uh, this week we focused on kind of the early first half of Moses as an adult. Before we get too much into this study today, I'd like to share with you a little bit of what we're doing and, and how we're studying Exodus together here. When I was in college, I was with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and uh, doing Bible study and learning how to study the Bible a little bit with them. And they taught us a method that they called manuscript study. Uh, it was something that I remember kind of beginning with them and then going on into seminary and taking Bible study classes afterwards, what was able to really grow and expand. But it started out with this simple practice that they called manuscript study. What is a manuscript study? It's uh, a way of studying the Bible text. And the best way to do that, it's a very hands-on practical method, is to be able to get the text into a form that you can really write and draw and color and get messy with. Uh, many people don't want to do that with their personal Bibles. Uh, there are some people that do. They'll, they'll buy a Bible and they'll use it for a year and they'll mark it up and it'll be almost illegible by the end of the year. And then they'll go and they'll buy a new Bible the next year. But uh, most people don't want to mark in their Bibles like that. And so there are two methods that I have found for the majority of people that are, are helpful. Uh, the first one is to just get the text of a scripture, uh, put it in a Word document and print it out, get it on actual paper, and then grab pencils, pens, markers, whatever you feel comfortable with and is most helpful for you, and, and just go to town marking up the text in uh, what you see there. When we did this originally uh, with InterVarsity, they, they even took out the verse numbers and chapter numbers so we could see it a little bit more like the early church would have saw these scriptures before they'd been formatted and translated and uh, all of this uh, for us. So it's, it's just taking us one step a little closer to those original documents and how they would have been received. So that's the first method. Get the Bible text, print it out, grab your pens, pencils, markers and uh, begin marking it up. The other one is that nowadays uh, with our digital technology, you can find, some, in fact, there are apps out there that will uh, allow you to do this just through the app, but there are ways that you can get the Bible text in a digital form on your phone or a tablet or on a computer and then digitally mark it up. So you're not actually uh, doing anything to a physical Bible uh, in that regard. And if you make a mistake or you want to go back, it's as simple as hitting undo or going back to a, a clean file and starting all over again. Either one of these methods allow you to, to get to the essential practical nature of doing a manuscript study. So if you've been following the blog, the pictures that I've been sharing is my digital method of being able to highlight and draw and make notes. Um, as to what we see there in the text. We're gonna learn some more manuscript study methods uh, in the upcoming weeks here. 
but I'd like to uh, jump into our scriptures for this week. This week we covered Exodus chapter 2, verses 15, up to Exodus 3, uh, verse 9. None of them are very long passages, but this kind of covers the adult life of Moses up until he has his encounter with God. And it begins kind of in, in that place where we left off. We've got cultural clashing going on between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Moses is being um, placed right in the middle of this, in this unique and kind of precarious situation. And, uh, and this just this first passage shows kind of where the bottom drops out in that conflict. He witnesses that conflict firsthand an Egyptian beating a Hebrew person, and something in him uh, decides to jump in and make a difference and fix the situation. And so he tries to advocate for the Hebrews by uh, then uh, killing that Egyptian that was beating the Hebrews, and then realizing that was kind of overdoing it there, buries the body in the sand and hopes to just forget about that. Uh, hoping that the Egyptians don't find out about that. And the Egyptians don't initially, but the Hebrews do. And when he goes back to visit, um, kind of assuming that he should be regarded as a savior figure, as a hero in this, he rescued them from the people that were oppressing them and beating them. And he sees them fighting and beating one another. That violence has become just part of the culture uh, of what they do to their enemies and how they treat one another. And he's kind of disgusted by that and, and challenges, confronts them. Why are you doing this? Um, and they turn on him and point out that they know what he did to that Egyptian and um, kind of point out the hypocrisy in his trying to call them on the act of violence. And at that point, he realized that he's been caught. And not only has he been caught, but he doesn't have allies among the Egyptians or the Hebrew people. He really is kind of cast out. And so um, at that point, uh, recognizing that the matter has been known, uh, then he heads out. Pharaoh finds out about this and wants to have Moses killed. There's no reason to have Moses as this uh, cultural linchpin between the two, the Egyptians and the Hebrews at this point. Um, the conflict is out in the open. And so Moses flees and he goes uh, east into the land of Midian. And it says he settles down there by the well. And I think that this, this next passage, there's a, a strong emphasis to me on this, this well, because Moses has not been raised out in the wilderness. He's not been raised even among the Hebrew slaves there in that kind of um, oasis, Nile River Valley. He's been raised in the Egyptian court in the palace. And so one of the questions that comes to my mind as I'm reading through this is, how does Moses have the survival skills to even just survive days out in the barren wasteland um, in this, this context where if you can't find water, if you don't know where the water is on a regular basis, you won't make it. And that's even true uh, in many places nowadays where we have lots of technology and means of transporting water all over the place. Moses has nothing. He's a refugee on the run uh, with no allies. And so after he flees from Egypt, it 
takes him to this well, and that's, that's a source of life in a strange place that he doesn't know, and he doesn't know anybody else. And it's from this well uh, that he gets adopted into a new family. I also find it kind of curious that he moves from a conflict between two groups of people, the Egyptians and the Hebrew people, uh, into right by this well, another conflict between two people. You got the, the priest of Midian and his family, his daughters, who are coming for that uh, life-giving, uh, very much needed water for them and their livestock. But then you also have these shepherds coming in with their flocks. And I think when we see the word shepherds here, we need to understand this as nomadic people that move from place to place uh, wherever there's uh, grass and greenery for the sheep to graze. They're going to allow them uh, to graze there. And wherever there's water, they're going to allow their livestock uh, to get water there. And if it was just a handful of shepherds and a handful uh, of these uh, daughters of the priest of Midian, I think that that would not be a major conflict. But what the problem is, is that these, these daughters that are getting water for their families and their livestock are not just having to wait in line behind the shepherds, but behind the animals as well. And so um, there's a question in my mind of who does this well belong to? Because the shepherds being nomadic are not gonna own property or probably not gonna own this well. But that priest of Midian might, because a priesthood is more of a civilized, institutional, in one place uh, kind of concept. And so could it be that the priest actually owns this well? He's sending his daughters to go get water from his well. And they're having to wait in line behind these strange shepherds that are coming in, in and out of the territory uh, as they please. And if that's true, then there's a question, does this priest have no mean of enforcing um, sort of private property on there? Uh, does he have any way of protecting um, his own water rights? Uh, or is it that it's just a, a well out there in common land and first come, first serve? Uh, either way, it notes that the priest has seven daughters and it doesn't mention any sons. It doesn't mention any servants. And so it makes me think that he doesn't have armed forces that are able to protect uh, the water that he needs uh, for his family um, and their livestock, their livelihood there. Moses finds himself escaping from one conflict between two peoples and thrown right into the next. And so what does he do? He steps up and he advocates uh, for these, these women, these seven daughters of the priest of Midian and kind of helps um, run those shepherds off. It'll only be temporary. They will be back, I'm sure. But uh, to stand up so that these um, daughters of Midian can come in and get the water that they need to take home. So they do, and they go back home and they tell their, their father, um, Jethro, the priest of Midian, about what happened here. And Jethro tells them, why did you not bring this man back? He advocated for us, he helped us out, um, and he doesn't even know who we are. Invite him back, we'll give him a meal, and then it very, very quickly transpires to Moses, who has no home, who barely made it out to this well to find water to get through one more day himself, is now being adopted into a new family. The second adoption that he's experienced in his lifetime. And it moves from uh, just being willing to stay there in the household 
and, and potentially being one of those enforcers um, to help make sure that family gets the water that they need and the things that they need to survive um, to marrying into the family and becoming part of that family. This brings us to one of the most famous passages uh, about Moses and the one that we often refer to as Moses and the burning bush. This is the, the point where he really kind of meets God for the first time himself. And it's a little bit of a misnomer to call it the burning bush because as you look at the text here in um, chapter three, verses one through six, what is amazing, what is miraculous about it is not that the bush is burning, but that the bush is on fire and yet is not consumed. Um, and so that, that's kind of that, the thing that grabs Moses' attention and grabs his wonder, uh, that first response to, to God's presence, really, that he has before he even knows what it is. As you um, look at the beginning of this, it, it sets it up that here's Moses years later, and he's, he's become a kind of a shepherd himself. He's pastoring the flock of his father-in-law, that priest of Midian. And it says he leads the flock out to the west side of the wilderness. Now, if you were to grab uh, a map or just get online and, and kind of do a Google search for Midian and Egypt and um, the ancient Near East or Moses to get that kind of time period, you'll, you'll realize pretty quickly here that um, this is the border, the west end of Midian where Moses is taking this flock is really the border boundary line between Midian and Egypt. And so as I'm reading this and questioning in my head, okay, Moses was born in this special situation, um, uniquely set up to be able to help the Hebrew people uh, escape bondage, to, to be that important messenger of God, that that was set up from his birth. He, he ran away. He was adopted into a new family. He's part of the Midianites, really, at this point, um, and left that old part of his life behind. Did God go hunting him down and create this burning bush experience to sort of bring Moses back? And I think that, that there's probably a sense that, yes, that God had his eye on Moses and was, was trying to get him back. But this particular... Uh, beginning of the verse there uh, in chapter three, verse one, where it talks about where Moses is taking his sheep. He's taking them to that boundary line back as close as he can get to Egypt while still being um, in Midian. And it makes me wonder uh, years later when no one's gonna remember Moses or very few people would and they probably wouldn't recognize him at this point. Um, is he going back to that boundary line, hoping to maybe look over the, that, that water boundary is what it is, and see Egypt on the other side, and maybe see some of the Hebrew people that are working out there, uh, or some of the Egyptians, just to see what the place looked like? Is he curious about his past and wanting to just get a glimpse of it over there while he's out taking care of his sheep? Or could it be another reason? Either way, He's going back closer to Egypt at this point, and that's where he meets God. When he sees that burning bush, it draws his wonder and his curiosity there. And it says, he says to himself, I must turn aside and now see this marvelous sight. 
So he's excited, he's curious. There's that sense of wonder. But when he gets there and he gets close to that bush, God calls out to him, calls him by name, uh, recognize him. And Moses says, here I am. And then God uh, immediately kind of goes through and explains who he is. First says, you need to remove your sandals from your feet because this is holy ground. And I will fully admit that I don't understand what the issue is with holy ground and wearing sandals or shoes or anything covering your feet. I don't know if socks count. I, I don't understand that. Uh, and so that's, that's a cultural question that as I, I see that and note that there, um, when God says, uh, not only do not come near here, but that, that issue about foot coverings, that's a question that I wanna dig deeper into and, and try to understand. Is there something uh, about what your sandals have been covered in that might be un considered unclean and not allowed in there? Um, but then in those days, what's the difference between walking around with sandals and walking around barefoot um, and standing before God's presence? I don't know. Uh, that's, that's a question I, I'll have to do some more digging in. But the, the emotional impact, the atmosphere of this encounter takes a drastic change um, from that wonder and curiosity that Moses has when he sees the bush to hearing God's voice, call him by name, tell him this is holy ground, take your sandals off. And then he calls him out and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He reminds Moses who he is as connected to those Hebrew people and brings up that past and all of that all again and that's the point where Moses' curiosity is gone. His wonder has completely flipped over and now he's afraid. And it, that passage there ends that he's afraid to look at God. The last passage here, uh, verses seven through nine in chapter three, are really a point where we've had a, a chapter, a chapter and a half of Moses in his life. And kind of, uh, if we're thinking about this in a movie uh, kind of setting, where the camera has been on Moses and the focus has been on Moses and his part of the origin story for a while. And now the camera finally takes a step back and we get God's perspective of what's going on. And this is important. So, so verses seven through nine are an important part of this uh, setup to the story of Exodus because we've seen the story of the Hebrew people and the Egyptian people. We've seen the story of Moses and now we get God's take on the situation. And he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have given heed to their cry. I am aware of their sufferings. So they've been suffering for generations now and God's saying, I have seen this. I'm not unaware of it. I'm not deaf to it. I've been here. I'm aware of it. And then he, he kind of lays out his plan of saving the Hebrew people from Egypt. And this is where I, I want to take just a moment to focus in on one piece of that manuscript study um, that I shared about at the beginning of this podcast. One of the things that you can do is look for certain types of words and mark them, highlight them, Whatever method, whatever colors, there, there's no right or wrong way to do this uh, as long as it helps you uh, 
focus your attention on the things that you're trying to dig into. And so just looking at uh, seven, eight, and nine, three verses here, we can look at what are the, the nouns? What are the, the sort of persons, places, and things that are noted here? And how do they draw questions or connections with us? And there in the middle where he talks about where he's going to take them, he says to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorites, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And I know some of those names, but I can't tell you a lot about them. And so that's a place where you could circle those, you could highlight those, uh, take a note and say, I want to do a little more research to understand these people a little bit more because they're important. They're important enough to be named by name in the scripture as God speaking. And so it might be helpful for us to understand the bigger context of where God is taking the Hebrew people um, to understand who, who is the people that currently live in that promised land right now and what are they like? So that's, that's one way of using nouns. Uh, another one is you could use uh, verbs or action words. And that's, that's kind of what I did here in this looking at God's plan um, for saving the Jews. And uh, he says, so I have come down to deliver them uh, from the power of the Egyptians. So coming down to deliver them. And then he says, I'm going to bring them up from that land to good and spacious land, land flowing with milk and honey. And so there's this specifically saying, come down and then bring them back up. And that's where I start to see this connection between God's plan of what he says, deliverance there, which is saving them, which is connected in with salvation, salvation, rescue, deliverance, uh, all very similar action words here. And when you compare this plan that God has in Exodus to what he has in the gospel. And you can see this uh, perhaps in, in the gospel of John, um, in the first three chapters of John, where it very clearly shows God sort of above hearing the cries, seeing the darkness, seeing the mess, God choosing to come down and become flesh and dwell amongst us, to save us, not to judge us, but to save us. And then this idea that he's gonna bring us back um, to a better place, that coming down saving us and bringing us back up, I think is a, a beautiful echo of what we see in the gospel, in the work of Jesus. And so that, that's just uh, an example of how the God of the Old Testament, the God of, of Moses, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and uh, all of these uh, people in the past really is the same God that we see in the New Testament, um, who, who sits above us, but who hears us and who doesn't just stay above us, but he chooses to come down and to save us. And then he's not going to just leave us here and tell us, okay, I got you out of your trouble, but you're on your own now. But he intends to take us and bring us back um, to a better place. That's, that's a way that we can use just looking at the action words, just highlighting the verbs, paying attention to those verbs and seeing some... Um, really neat connections with uh, the God that is in Exodus to the very same God that is in the New Testament and the very same God that is in our lives as well. 
Next week, we're going to look at uh, the mission of Moses that, that God gives to Moses and his specific role in um, bringing the Hebrew people out of bondage and beginning to bring them into the presence of God. And so I encourage you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, print off those texts. Uh, if you've got a computer program or, or app on a, a phone or a tablet that you can use, get into those texts and mark them up. Um, see those connections. And, and I'd love to hear from you uh, in the comments uh, here on the podcast or on the blogs or on social media. I'd love to hear what you're seeing uh, because the, the really cool thing about doing studies this way is it allows you to see the depth of what we have in these scriptures, um, just in, in the stories themselves and the way that they connect uh, with one another and, and across the scriptures and into your lives as well. So I'd love to hear how your journey through Exodus is going. This is Tony Franklin. Thank you for joining us for Jesus Politics in our journey through Exodus. See you all next Friday.